we're going to depart from the norm at this spring concert and bring you into a little bit of the inner workings of the organization, some things that you may not know about. That's David Hatner, musical director and conductor of the Portland Youth Philharmonic. You're listening to an excerpt of their viral YouTube video, an introduction to the instruments of the orchestra. Most orchestras that do educational concerts uh, do instrument demonstrations, but they've become a rather stale ritual in a lot of professional orchestras, but not so here. They're kept fresh and vibrant because the musicians invest very much of their time and energy into making them special. So without further ado, let's introduce you to the sections of the Portland Youth Philharmonic, starting in the woodwind section, which is in the center of the orchestra, and our flute section. I'm Gregory Day. You're listening to pdxpodcast.com. David is the fifth musical director of the Portland Youth Philharmonic. He's also an accomplished clarinetist who studied under Robert Marcellus, who's considered the most influential clarinet teacher of the last half of the 20th century. We stopped by the Philharmonic's headquarters last month to learn more about the organization and the video you just heard. And we begin there. Over 100,000 views on this. You've got the Mario theme, Ghostbusters, I mean, Star Wars. It's a real fun introduction. Mm -hmm. They've been used in classrooms all over the country and possibly wider than that. So you think that's why it went viral, because it has been used as sort of an educational tool? We hear from teachers who use it. So it's definitely being used in classrooms. And... I think parents have shown it to their children, and others just think it's funny. In the second row of woodwinds, we first have the clarinet section. You've been the musical director for 10 years now. Has has it flown by? (laughs) It has, but (laughs) it has been the most satisfying thing that I've done in my musical career, I think. What's your backstory? I think you mentioned you spent time on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I was a New York City freelance musician for 12 years mostly as a clarinetist, but increasingly in the last five years uh, conducting. And all those combinations of experiences were great preparation to teach young musicians in Portland, Oregon. And finally, the bass member of the Woodwind family, also a double reed instrument, the bassoon. I had um, to put to use my skills as a typist to work as a temp worker my first couple of years as uh, the music work started to build. You have to 
earn a living somehow. And you were coming from where to New York? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I was born in Ohio, and oh, okay. I was educated entirely in the Midwest. I spent some years of that high school. a culture shock. Yes, it, it's very different. I, so I studied at Northwestern University and also the Interlochen Arts Academy before that. Right. And so New York City, yeah, there's very little in that part of the country to prepare you for it. I mean, Chicago right. was 26 is, years old. Something like that, yeah. You're typing and you're freelancing. You're just <laughs> doing it at night. Well, uh, you know, the great thing about temping is, you know, it's a two or three day right. assignment. And uh, if you need to bail, they'll work it out. But mostly, yeah, those first two years, um, you're um, working with Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, <laughs> and uh, answering phones. Uh, you know, even I was I worked right. in the World Trade Center, even for uh, Solomon Brothers during a huge blizzard. Once they were it was right at the end of the quarter. When was this? This was in 2006, I think. 2006. No, no I'm sorry, 1996. 1996. Let's, let's look at the right decade. Okay. There was a huge snowstorm, and they needed their quarterly reports typed up, and nobody could get anywhere. It, was, it snowed so much, even the subway was barely running in certain parts. So if you could get to the World Trade Center, you could make $25 an hour typing up uh, quarterly reports for, uh, what was that? I can't remember what it was, Solomon Brothers. And at night, you, um, you ventured out? And yeah, well, you know, you got to practice, you got to right. study, you got to socialize, go to concerts. It's New York City. I mean, what, what is there not to do as a young person in New York City? You know, as a freelancer, you just get in the habit of saying yes to whatever they ask you to do, whether it's a, a recital of contemporary right. clarinet and piano music at uh, Stony Brook University or uh, subbing with the New Jersey Symphony or the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra or playing two clarinet bassoon trios in a prison in central New Jersey. You play prisons. We, we played a number of prisons. They were very good audiences, as it turns out. <laughs> they're, they're interested Right. They, don't, they, don't, they don't have that many people come in and talk to them. Right. I became more interested in conducting as, as the 2000s rolled in. And then in the summers of 2003, 5, and 6, I studied conducting at the Aspen Academy of Conducting in Colorado with some really terrific teachers, including one who is associated with Portland quite closely, Murray Sidlin, who was once the resident conductor of the Oregon Symphony, and learned the craft of conducting and was exposed to some really terrific younger conductors, who uh, many of whom are having very fine careers these days. And that uh, got me to the point where I was able to participate in auditions for conducting jobs. Uh, both with professional orchestras and eventually with uh, the Portland Youth Club. In Aspen, you must have seen a lot of celebrities there. We saw a few. I, I remember <laughs> I remember seeing Wolf Blitzer for some reason. And I remember somewhere around 2000, it must have been 2005, a bunch of my colleagues, uh, because there's an Aspen Institute that, that deals with political thought, uh, were buying tickets to go see a speech by a certain senator from Illinois. And uh, they're saying, you should come. And I was like, I don't pay money to hear politicians speak. I hear them right. speak all the time. And of course, right. that was turned out Barack to be Obama. Barack Obama. Yeah. 
Now, I've read that, that Mr. Ray got the orchestra into, quote, the modern age. What exactly does that mean? It sounds like something I would say. Right, really? Um, well, the, the orchestra was founded by a Russian immigrant named Gershkovich. You can see his photo behind me on, on this wall. Um, and he was, a, he was born in the 1880s. So contemporary music to him, something like Claude Debussy was extremely contemporary to him. And he had a sort of set repertoire that he repeated every several years and occasionally would add a new piece here or there. He, he learned a lot of American music, actually. And he conducted 29 seasons of concerts and built, built the orchestra, established the working methods. And then in 1954, when Jacob Avshalomov took over as a composer Abshalomov, himself. Jacob Avshalomov, right. yes. He's a funny guy. Well, I was fortunate enough to get to know him when I first got here. But he really uh, commissioned contemporary composers, programmed his own works, and made sure that everything going on was really relevant to the modern day. Right. And sort of in the same vein, you like to work with modern American composers. You develop a playlist. You have a preference for modern American works. Well, I'm actually the first American-born conductor of this orchestra. It's <laughs> remarkable because uh, Mr. Gershkovich was born in the, in Russia, actually in Siberia. Jacob Ashton was born in China. Uh, Mayan Chen was born in Taiwan, and Hugh Edwards was born in Wales. So it's a coincidence that, that finally they have an American-born. But I grew up playing a lot of concert band music almost all of which is American and comes from the 20th century. And, and the sound of that was always in my ear. So when I discovered the orchestra music by these same composers and similar composers and, and noted how little it was programmed, I, I felt it was our duty as an American orchestra to preserve the classical repertoire by Americans. Because if, if American orchestras conductors yeah. don't do it, no one will. So that's quite well mixed in with the, you know, the most famous works of the classical canon and also brand new things that no one has heard before. website is, is, I mean, has a lot of information on there, even information for people who are new to classical music, what to wear, when to clap. I thought that was a great outreach, and you're always looking for fresh faces to visit. It's not just about the music, is it? No, it isn't. But all those things you say, one of the things Murray Sidlin used to say to us conducting students was that a lot of people who like the music that we play, don't feel invited to the event. That's right. I did read this, yes. They feel like, uh, I describe it as when you visit someone else's church or mosque or synagogue and you're sitting there and you don't understand anything and all of a sudden everyone stands up and you're, you're still sitting there because you don't know the rituals. And unfortunately, classical music seems to come with all these silly rituals it about does. how you be an audience it member. It does, yes. So when we started the fall concert series you know, at our opening night, I told the audience, which, which contained a lot of first-time attendees because we had done a lot of publicity and a lot of people came to see, like, what is what is this concert? I said, we're, we're throwing all the rules that go with classical music out. If you want to clap in the middle of the music, 
feel feel free to do that. No, no one did, but they clapped in between the movements. It was fine. That's that's actually a tradition that goes back to the old classical style. There was more like a contemporary popular music concert. If somebody liked the way the oboist played a solo, they would applaud that. Right. If they liked the movement of the symphony, they would applaud so much they'd have to play it over again. That's that's really the, where the audience was really interacting directly with the performance and not sort of sitting there mummified until it was safe to express right. some kind of appreciation. So. You don't have to wear a tux. No, you don't, you, you don't have to wear anything in particular. <laughs> you, can, you can dress extraordinarily casually for our concerts right. uh, and just know that um, you should experience the music freshly and respond to it naturally. Right. create programs and different community engagement items both for uh, the public good and also to some degree to serve needs that we have as an organization. One of the issues that goes back far be before my presence here is the number of players on the double bass, the largest string instrument. Mm -hmm. We've never had as many as we would like to have and it's never been as abundant as violins and cellos and some of the cello players. Yeah. Well, we have some wonderful teachers. And we actually have some wonderful... They sound fantastic. Thank you very much. We, we have some wonderful bass teachers, too, and we want as many people as possible to experience them. And so we decided to create a class where anyone, uh, high school age or younger, who can get a double bass to our rehearsal location... Or younger. How much younger? Well, they make Looking really small double basses. You know, they make... Uh, violins as small as one sixteenth size, so that three year olds can play them, and, and they make basses I think as, as as small as an eighth size, so maybe a eight or nine year old could actually handle a a double bass. And they they study with one of three members of the Oregon Symphony who all teach at the same time. We have three different levels of the class. Mm -hmm. and it has produced a lot of terrific players. People who have gone on from our orchestra to go to major conservatories have come through that. Right, bass these class. alumni must be very satisfying to to see them again. Well, it's great, especially when uh, you have because you've worked here for so long. Well, when you have a student who comes to the bass class the first day, never having played the bass with a bow, having only played in their jazz band pizzicato, right. and uh, four years later they're going to one of the top conservatories in the in the country. I found my experiences at that age unforgettable. That's one reason that I work so hard to keep the standard of performance so high. It's really here. high. It, it's a well, first of all, the the pressure is on because the tradition from before my arrival was big, big shoes to fill. Yes. Absolutely. You know, the 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 people have gone on to such great things. And so you're you're expected to whatever it takes to to maintain that. And now that some of the alumni are, you know, in their middle 20s, you, you do hear from them. And sometimes they have trouble putting into words what it meant to be in the orchestra. But they understand, having gone through college and graduate school in many cases, and some of them are in medical school or they're already working in their profession, that the whole notion of being prepared, being prepared to go on stage to play a concert, the number of details that one has to have command of, not only what is printed in their part, but the things that are printed in all the other parts that they have to be aware of, and then just sort of other things that happen in the music that are never printed but just have to be understood along the way. 
that make the music alive and not just you know a rote thing that everyone has learned how to get from beginning to end without falling apart but they're really actively making the music the whole way all of those things go toward being prepared to do anything i, I often say to the orchestra if if you will um go to whatever is important at the next level whether it's an exam or a term paper or an interview for an internship or a job as prepared as you were to go on stage to play our concerts you'll, you'll do just fine and I think they, they find that uh, to be true and also they find the, the way they prepare for our concerts which is little bits of improvement on a daily basis for weeks um, amounts to a lot. We move now to the back of the orchestra and the brass section and we'll start with the uh, trombones and tuba or the low brass. put one of them out front and they go all Hollywood on you. <laughs> In front of them are our trumpets. So how can people get involved with the Portland Youth Philharmonic? Well, the most important way is to attend the concerts and to be acquainted with the work of the orchestra. Any musical event exists only to the point where people are there to hear it. And that's right. one of the main areas the orchestra is interested in improving is having more people at every performance. So the tickets are inexpensive. And... They're not only musically very fine, but they're inspiring because not tickets only... Tickets are expensive? Uh, student tickets are $5. Uh, seniors, what are this? Ten for seniors. <laughs> but uh, generally, there's always an inexpensive ticket in the hall. So when we say locally yes. grown, yeah. that's we, we mean that in the, the most uh, serious way. Is this is not an organization that exists to bring in famous musicians from elsewhere and present them to the public right. for profit. This is one that takes the, the youth that come from this community and raise them up to a level that they never imagined existed before they joined the organization. And support tuxedo rental places too. <laughs> Absolutely. Today's show was produced and edited by Gregory Day. That's me. If you'd like to contact me directly, make sure to email me at greg at pdxpodcast.com. We'll be back with an ad-free show next Monday. See you then. It's true. Most of them look very uh, young and manly, but deep down they're all princesses, clearly. <laughs> On the other side of the back of the stage, we have our kitchen, or percussion section, as they're better known. And uh, they have something for us to do. Also, over here are our timpani.
So if if you visit our website at portlandyouthphil.org, the spelling of that may be, because phil, philharmonic is spelled with a P-H. It's a Greek-derived word. Uh, so if you visit our website, you can see through there our various social media channels, including a very active YouTube page, which Very you active, fantastic YouTube page. It blew me away. Yeah, we hear from people from all over. I got an email from somebody in Florida the other day that had discovered one of our more unusual YouTubes. He was just, I'm now your fan, and uh, I wish I wish he were closer so he could actually hear us in, in the room. Right. But we do uh, all, all sorts of things, and there are occasionally uh, concerts in different communities by one of our younger groups or our Camarada PYP, which is our chamber orchestra. So the easiest thing to do is to get on our mailing list and then get the brochures and, and see what's on the calendar. Thank you, David. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Appreciate it. Anytime. <laughs>